Then we go off the scene and the next generation comes. And what Glenn said is true. You can either fret and worry, complain about your talent, or you can uh, walk by faith. And we've come this far by faith. That's what believers have discovered. And we can't change a lot of world events because guess what? Most of the world is run by dictators. Do you realize that? People in those countries can do absolutely nothing. They're oppressed, they're put down. But except one thing, if they're believers, they can pray, can't they? And that's why faith is the key to this thing. In our country, you have a vote, and yes, you can. We have a representative government, and you so supposedly can speak to your representative. It doesn't uh, help that much. <laughs> Because there are other people speaking to your representative who give big money. And they're lobbyists, right? But you know what you can do? You can pray. And God can intervene. It's like Glenn said. Sometimes God can send a revival throughout an entire country. And it's spontaneous and it's sovereign. And so we just need to walk by faith. And uh, one other thing we need to do is we need to take care of one another. We need to love one another. I may not be able to change the world... But I can change one person's life by loving them and reaching out to them. And uh, that's what we're trying to do in the President's class. And when we do that, is there anything in this President's class that can't be solved if we just do things together for each other and love one another? Absolutely not one thing. We could feed anybody who has need in this class. Uh, collectively, we have enough money to take care of anybody's needs if there was a catastrophe in their lives in this class. If there's somebody who is dying of cancer, we can bombard heaven, and if God sees fit to answer, they can be healed because we've intervened and interceded for these people. God can do anything through us if we just trust him. The problem is we just don't really trust it. We try to do things the way we want to do things, but we expect supernatural results, and it doesn't happen. So that's why this passage in front of us is so important, I think, because it deals with our relationship with other people and in light of the world situation. Okay, So turn over to Matthew chapter 25, and we're going to cover verses 31 through 46. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. And this is Jesus' final teaching uh, as he sits on the Mount of Olives. <clears throat> Chapters 24 and 25 are what is called the Olivet Discourses. He has several little sermons, and this is his final sermon on the Mount of Olives. And the theme is the coming of the Lord to judge. The Old Testament prophets called it the Day of the Lord. And here's how we're going to outline our section. Uh, we're going to get a picture of the scene. In other words, the, 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 the context. And that's verses 31 through 33. That's the scene of judgment. And then verses 34 to 40, we're going to see the king pronouncing uh, a benediction or a blessing upon the righteous at this judgment. And then verses 41 through 45, we have his pronouncement upon the guilty. And then finally, verses four, verse 46, we have a summary that sort of summarizes the entire judgment. So let's take a look at this. Let's look at the scene. So we're in verse 31. It says this. When the Son of Man comes, 
and his glory, and all the holy angels with him. Then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set his sheep on the right hand, but the goats on the left. Now, when you look at this, I want you to notice the first clause. Notice what it says. When the Son of Man comes. This speaks of the Messiah's arrival. And it links us back to the original question in chapter 24. Remember what they said? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? That's how. That's the question that starts the Olivet Discourse. And now notice what he says. When the Son of Man comes. Now, it's not if the Son of Man comes. There's a certainty that He's coming. But the timing of His coming is unknown by everyone. Even the Son doesn't know when He comes. But when He comes, certain things are going to happen. So, notice here the prepositions. Okay? First it tells us how He comes. Look what it says. When the Son of Man comes, now watch the preposition, in His glory. Now remember, we talked about how the apostles probably thought Jesus was just going to come back into Jerusalem overthrow the Roman government, but that's not how He was going to do it. When He comes, He comes out in His glory. This means it's going to be after He dies and after He's resurrected. He's going to come. It's a glorious coming. Not just in His flesh, but in His glory. And, notice the next preposition. With. And all the holy angels with Him. When He comes, He's coming with a heavenly entourage. This is His court. Okay? And He's coming with these holy messengers, or angels. What's happening is that Christ, who is now ascended into heaven is going to come down to earth. Heaven invades earth. And he comes in his glory with these angels. And then notice the next preposition. The word on. Then he shall sit on his throne. When he comes, he'll sit on a throne. The throne of his glory. Not a throne like King David had, which was just a physical throne with a regular old king. This is a glorious king on a what's called his throne of glory. This is going to be his position of authority on earth. This is when he comes, he sits on a throne, and he takes authority and control over the entire earth. Notice his designation, his title there in verse 31. It's called the Son of Man. You see that? That's a phrase that originated with the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. When he has a vision, he says, And I saw the one like the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days, and there was given him glory in the throne. And so Jesus depicts himself as the Son of Man that was prophesied by the prophet Daniel. Back in chapter 19, you see that same designation. So look back there at chapter, or chapter 19, rather. In Matthew 19 and... Um, Look down toward the end of that chapter. And look at verse 28 where it says, So Jesus said to them, this is Matthew 19, 28, Surely, truly, you can count on it, 
I say to you that in the regeneration, that's when there's this new birth age, the kingdom age, when the Son of Man, there's that title, look at this, sits on His throne of glory. Do you see that? So this is not a new concept. So when He is giving the Olivet Discourse and He uses this, they're familiar with it. They've heard it before. So now they're starting to understand it a little better. So He's going to sit on this throne, which means if you sit on the throne, you're a king, aren't you? Yes, He's going to rule the entire universe. And that is confirmed down in verse 34 of Matthew 25. Look what it says. Then the king. Do you see that? The king. Look down in verse 40. What's it say? And the king. So Jesus is the son of man who sits on the throne, who's been given authority over heaven and earth, and he reigns as king. Okay, now what we discover is that there's a process in this judgment. And we see this in this scene. First of all, there's a division. Look in verse 32. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Now this is a metaphor. He's talking about sheep and he's talking about goats. Okay? In Palestine, it's very interesting. During the daytime, the sheep and the goats graze together. They intermingle. And if you were standing far off, you'd look at them and you wouldn't be able hardly to distinguish between the sheep and the goats. But at night, the sheep and the goats are divided because goats need warmth. More warmth than sheep because the sheep's wool. And so they have to go into some sort of, uh, what do you call that, shelter because they need heat. And so there's a dividing of sheep and goats. So when he says there's going to be dividing of sheep and goats, the people, his disciples, understand that kind of language because they know what happens during the day. But Jesus isn't talking about animals, is he? Who's he talking about? He's talking about people. See? And he calls them the people of these nations. See? Uh, the same nations that he says in Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the nations, and then the end shall come. These aren't people who have never heard the gospel. These are the people of the nations where the gospel has been delivered and they've heard it. And uh, now they're held responsible for what they've heard. Do they believe the gospel? Do they implement the gospel? And that's what he's describing here. People, not people who have never heard, but people who indeed in the nations who have heard because the gospel, according to this passage, has been delivered to all the nations. Now look at verse 33. And he shall set his sheep on his right hand. That means some people will go to his right hand. That's the place of honor. And the goats on the left hand, that's the place of disgrace. When we're talking about honor and disgrace, honor and shame, right hand and left hand. So there's a great division between the people at the judgment. Now, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you know that that's exactly the same thing the parables say. There's going to be two in the field. One's going to be taken away to judgment, one's left behind. Right? There's a division between the two. There'll be two in a mill. Guess what? They're divided. There will be faithful servants and there will be bad servants. And again, what we see is how there is a division there. There are the 
wise virgins, and there are the foolish virgins. Notice the division. So everything is divided between the two kinds. And here we have another division. And each, is, each of those parables point to the division between those that are the Lord's and those who are not at his coming. Okay? So that is the scene. That's the judgment scene. That's sort of an overview of what's going to happen. Okay? Now watch the pronouncement that is made to the righteous. Look at verse 34. Then the king, same as the son of man, will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. We're going to call that the invitation. He extends an invitation to those on his right hand. And he invites them to come into the kingdom. Inherit that kingdom. Now I want you to notice two words. And I want you to remember these two words. Okay? We do this occasionally, don't we? About every three or four months I ask you to remember words. Okay, so watch this one. Notice the word blessed. Come, you blessed of my Father. Okay. Uh, he blesses them. This is his benediction on the people. Remember the word blessed. Okay. And then the next thing I want you to remember is the word prepared. Prepared. Okay. So what are the two words? Blessed and prepared. Now he invites them into a kingdom that's been prepared when? Since the foundation of the world. This has been God's original plan. His end game has always been that his people will enter the kingdom. Not an afterthought, not plan B. This has been his kingdom. This has been his plan since the beginning of time that his people would enter the kingdom. That's his game plan. Okay? Now look at the reason for that invitation. Verse 35. Here's why he invites them in. Here's why they're blessed. For, because, here's why they get in, because, when I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in, means you showed me hospitality. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Six deeds. Six things listed. These, this is not an exhaustive list. This is simply an illustrative list. This is an example of the kinds of things that these people have done. All deal with what those other parables were talking about. Your time and your resources. What do you do with them? What do you do with your time? Do you go visit? What do you do with your resources? Do you feed? See? Do you have... Are you merciful towards others? Because if you're in the covenant of God, He's established a relationship with you, and He shows you mercy, and you're to show mercy to one another, and these acts of mercy are simply love and action. Do you love people, and do you show... Don't you say you love people. Do you love them? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll what? You'll obey me. See, so love is something that's in action. So we have these six deeds. Now look at their response, which is very interesting. Look at verse uh, 37. It says this. Then the righteous, that's those on his right hand, notice now he calls them the righteous. See? They were blessed. 
But now he says they're the righteous. What hand are they on? And they are righteous. Okay? Now watch this. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? Uh, when did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? So they asked this question. I can't remember doing that, Lord. Okay? And so look what he said. Here's his answer. And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, truly, truly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Now notice, the love and action was shown to the most needy. Do you see that? We're talking about the least of these, my brethren. The most needy. Is there anything less than least? Now there's the most, and here's the... That's the opposite of the most. These are the most needy people. And you've shown, you put love in action, and you've taken care of these. Okay? When did they do this? They did this in Jesus' absence. They did this after Jesus ascended into heaven. And before He comes back. They do it in these absence. That's the key. See? Now, who are these people? Who are these least of these my brethren? Well, there are three answers and we don't know for sure. It could mean this. Anybody that's needy in the world that you see, you should take care of them and help them out if they have a need. Just the world in general. It could mean fellow believers. Remember when Jesus said, Who is my brother and my sister? Who was it? He that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. So it could mean that it's referring to real believers. Do you take care of each other in the president's class, for example? Or do you just say, we believe in the virgin birth, we believe in the cross, we believe in the resurrection, we believe in... Do you just believe doctrinally, or is your love, your belief, does it demonstrate itself in, through merciful acts? So he could be talking about just other believers. Or he could be talking, in fact, by the way, that's what the question is when Jesus comes preaching, he calls them to repent, and they say, well, Lord, what does that mean? And he says, well, here's what it means to be a real believer. If you have two tunics, and you see someone who has none, do what? Give it to him. If you have some food, and another one has none, he says this over in Luke 3, then give it to him. That's our responsibility to the others in our family. If I have somebody who's hungry in my family, my physical family, I'm going to take care of them. I wouldn't think of saying to my son, let's say if he lost his job, and he went on unemployment, and tried to find a job and couldn't, and the unemployment ran out, and now he has nothing. Can't get disability, stronger than I am. Am I going to say, well, that's just too bad? You know, you're just lazy. Go to work for McDonald's for $8.49 an hour. You know? He said, well, I tried that, and they wouldn't hire me. Neither would Walmart. I couldn't even be a greeter. I was overeducated. It wouldn't take somebody with a PhD. You think I'd say, well, that's just too bad. You know, go to your father-in-law. <laughs> 
that you see how ridiculous that is. So guess what? Are we to take care of the family of God through which we're part? Yes, we are. That is what's called the fruit of repentance. But John says, let's see the fruit of repentance. Don't talk about, I change, I change. No, you don't change until you reorient your life toward the kingdom of God and live like a kingdom citizen. So it could mean just take care of the brethren but and sisters, but it could also mean take care of those that are in full-time ministry. And that's a major theory, and a lot of commentators say that. Because, uh, for example, you visited me when I was in jail. Uh, most Christians in the first century didn't end up in jail. But I can tell you who did end up in jail. Those who were out there in the public preaching the gospel. Paul and Peter and James and Jesus. I mean, yeah, Jesus, that's right, he was in jail. Uh, so, people like that. And it tells us something about the ministers, if this refers to ministers. It tells us that the first century ministers, in fact, ministers throughout all the ages, should live by faith. And trust God to meet their needs. Not get some job for $300,000 or take this and do that and do this. Say, so can I get up and get to the next level? What's my uh, annuity going to be? They didn't have that in those days. These guys, like Paul and Peter and James and John, and they just stepped out on faith. And they trusted wherever they preached, God's people would show them hospitality, take them in, whatever was needed. And if they ended up in jail, the believers would take care of them. So, Timothy takes Paul his cloak when he's in prison. So, it could be that. But it really doesn't matter, does it? I know that it's something. Would everybody agree it means something? At least it means taking care of ministers or other believers, but it could even mean something wider than that. But it means something. We should be doing something. Do we have love and action? Where's the fruit of repentance? So that's what he said. That's his pronouncement to the righteous. Now look at his pronouncement to the guilty. Okay? Still with me? Look at verse 41. Then he will also say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. If we call verses, the previous verses, Jesus' invitation to the righteous, we'll call this Jesus' indictment of the guilty, of the unrighteous. And uh, instead of entering the kingdom, guess where they're going? It says they're going to some other place. Everlasting fire. Okay. Now, remember I asked you to remember two words. What were they? See if you can remember this. This is how you can test whether you're in the first stages of Alzheimer's. Okay. What were they? Blessed. And what was the next? Prepared. Okay, now watch this. He called the righteous blessed. Look what he says to the unrighteous. Depart from me, you what? Cursed. This is part of this blessing cursed code. Remember in the Deuteronomy passage, 27, 28 passage, that uh, God gave Moses uh, instructions to the nation of Israel, and he said, here are the people who are going to be blessed, and here are the people who are going to be cursed. This was the blessing and cursing code. It was spoken not to the heathen out there, not to the Hittites, the Barisites, and all the other ites, right? It was spoken to God's people. And God's people are going to fall, so-called, this is like the Jewish nation, 
Those who call themselves God's people fall into one of two categories. The blessed category or the cursed category. It's the same with church people. Not all are going to enter the kingdom of God. Only those that are blessed. Only those who have God's benediction. The others are cursed. Lord, Lord! Yeah, well, he said, I didn't know you. Know what? So what we have here is the word cursed. That's the opposite of blessed. And the other word was the word prepared. Look at verse 41. You cursed into everlasting fire. Look at this. Prepared for the devil and his angels. Just as the kingdom has been prepared since the foundation of the world for those who are blessed, the righteous. So God has prepared everlasting fire for the devil and his angels or his messengers. So, if you follow the ways of Satan, which are the ways of taking care of yourself and not anybody else, looking out for number one. Oh, Jesus, I know you're hungry. Why don't you just turn those stones into bread and feed yourself, satisfy yourself? See how it was just all, hey, Adam and Eve, oh, why don't you eat from that tree? God said, no, I eat from that tree. It just satisfied your own curiosity, whatever you want. So there's a place prepared for the righteous. It's called the kingdom. That was God's plan all along. And then when sin enters the world, he prepares a place for Satan and those who are his followers. Okay? So this is his indictment in verse 41. Now look at the reason why they are indicted. Verse 42. For because I was hungry and you gave me no food. Obviously he's not just talking to heathen out there. They're not concerned about Jesus at all, are they? Watch this. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. Notice that all these sins are sins of omission. It's not what they did. What is it? But they didn't do. And when you look at the other parables that we've studied these past few weeks, they're all sins of what they didn't do. For example, remember that one parable back in chapter 24, one chapter back? Look over at uh, <clears throat> verse 45. <clears throat> and here's the wise servant. Look what he does. 2445. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his household, to give food in due season? That's what the wise guy does. What's the fool do? Does he take care of people and feed them? No. He's divided from the wise. He's a goat. The wise servant is a faithful servant. Because the foolish servant commits the sin of omission. He doesn't do what he's supposed to do. How about those servants who have talents? One five, one two, one one. What's the, what's the guy with the one talent do? He does what? Nothing. That's why Dr. Criswell said to this guy, I have one talent. What did Criswell tell him to do? Well, they go marry <laughs> Don't do anything with him. So, that guy commits the sin of omission. He does nothing with his talents doesn't gain any interest interest for his master when his master is 
away. How about the virgins? The foolish virgins. What do they do? Nothing. They just sleep on. They don't care about getting the oil that's needed. They do nothing. All sins of omission. What they didn't do is what condemns them. They didn't use their time and resources. Now you say you're preaching salvation to work? Absolutely not. I'm preaching a fruit of repentance. There's evidence that you're saved. These are people who say, Lord, Lord. But they're not doing the things. Who is my brother? He who does the will of my father. And these people are not doing it. See? It's not a salvation plus works. It's not works in order to gain salvation. It's not that if you don't do the works, you're going to lose your salvation. This is a faith that works. And a faith that works looks like something. And this is what it looks like. You take care of people. And that's the evidence that you're saved. Otherwise, guess what? You're just fooling yourself. You talk a good game, but you don't live a good game. So how do we use our resources? In the end, that's how we're judged. Now look at the response in verse 44. Then they, they will answer him and they will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick and in prison and did not minister to you? So now we have his answer. And he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did not do it to me. So not to care for the least is not to care for the master in his absence. So, chapters 24 and 25 all make sense when they're read together. And you see the pattern being repeated over and over and over again. And then finally, verse 46, we have the summary or a recapitulation that summarizes the entire judgment. So here's what it says. And these shall go into everlasting punishment. That's those on the left to disgrace the guilty who say they believe but don't show it. But the righteous into everlasting life. Now notice in verse 34, it's called the kingdom. But in verse 46, it's called everlasting eternal life. To enter the kingdom is to have eternal life. Now, the thing I want to just point out just for a second is this. Everything is revealed in the end. It all becomes crystal clear in the end. Who's the believer and who's not the believer. And because it's not revealed until the end, we must not judge people before them. Boy, do we like to judge people too soon. What did Jesus say? If you start judging people too soon, you'll end up pulling out the wheat with the tares. Remember when he said that? So, the evaluation doesn't come until the final day. And there's a reason for that. That gives you time to process this material. For some of you, it may have been 70 years. But you're getting it now, aren't you? Aren't you glad you weren't judged when you were 25? Or when you were 35 or 45 or whatever? See? Some of you are young and you're getting it now. And guess what? You have a lifetime full of serving the Lord. See? But the evaluation doesn't come until the final day. So that, that gives us a lifetime, or at least time, to process our responsibility before God and act accordingly. 
the final judgment will reveal only two kinds of people. Sheep or goats. Those that served the master in his absence. Is that what all the parables are about in this? Or those who didn't. So, real faith expresses itself through action. Merciful acts, which is simply another way of saying love and action. That's what the, God, uh, the Epistle of John is all about. Hey, it's all about love. And he defines love as taking care of the needs of God's people. That's why it's important that we do this. To bring a can of food and throw a buck in the plate for needy people? Hey, that doesn't cost much, but it reveals much. And that's why we do it. We don't do it to gain God's acceptance. We do it because He accepts us already and we're so grateful that we want to be a blessing to others. Just to receive us thus through His grace. Amen? Next week we'll pick up at Jesus' last week of His life. Lord, we thank You for this passage. It's important that we allow your word without any or little commentary to speak to us the pure, unadulterated unvarnished word and when it does we know what you speak oh Lord, now we have time to process these two chapters and now it's time to us to, to put it into practice and to act and for those who have already done so Lord, I just want to on their behalf tell you that they're so grateful for the blessings that you've given them and they want to bless others. And then, Lord, for the others in our midst and in our church, even, who have not learned this lesson. Oh, Lord, bring them to the reality that we need to bring forth fruits unto repentance. Lord, thank you for giving us this time for this passage in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs>